This is Piecing It All Together. Hey, that's P-E-A-C-I-N-G, and this is Randy Woodley. And I'm Bo Sanders, and we are doing our first online Zoom chat today. We're so excited. We have uh, we've some pulled up some chairs to the online table, and we are going to sit around and have a little conversation here. So why don't we go around the table? We'll start with you, Alicia, and uh, we'll introduce yourselves, and we'll get to know each other a little bit. All right. My name is Alicia. I'm a seminary student, and I currently identify as a free-range pastor. Um, I stepped out of a leadership role in May, and so I'm exploring what what comes next and figuring out stuff as I go. Yeah, my name is Tony Vercota, and I'm kind of free-range everything. I'm Ryan, you, you up? Yeah, I'm uh, Ryan, uh, as Bo just said. I'm an active-duty United States Navy chaplain stationed currently at Naval uh, Base Kitsap, which is actually uh, uh, a bunch of different installations, mainly uh, Bremerton, Bangor Submarine Base, and uh, Keyport. Um, but we serve about 30,000 personnel. That includes active-duty personnel, their families, and DOD civilians. I am Rob uh, in Northern California. Uh, we had a couple of people describe themselves as free-range uh, ministers. I'm more on the I'm more on the factory farming side of church ministry, uh, serving in a church in the Greater Sacramento area. Wow, good analogy, <laughs> Rob. You guys have some fires burning around you right now. Yeah, just a few. Um, there's a couple of smaller ones locally. There's a couple hours north of here in Redding, uh, they had to cancel all public schools yesterday because the air quality was so bad. So it's been uh, it's been a rough summer. And you live near that dam that uh, made national news last winter when it almost uh, broke, right? That's correct. In fact, my mom evacuated because she was in the secondary path of that. And they decided that among the things they would take when they left is they towed their boat away from the house in case that was the only way they could get back. Oh, my. So, Randy, you and I, in uh, an upcoming episode, need to talk about uh, both both flooding in the winter and fire in the summer, how they have become such massive trends. Yeah, I've been keeping track of um, so-called natural disasters since 1999. You know, we're talking about tornadoes, hurricanes, um, flooding, uh, fires, uh, earthquakes. All of those have become more... Uh, generally more severe and more frequent um, since, at least since I've been tracking it. Hmm. And, uh, of course, we've got the hottest 10 years on records uh, this past 10 years, and the decade before that was the second hottest, and the decade before that the third hottest. So uh, we're in trouble. So I think we probably will talk about that sometime. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, we wanted to offer you for a chance to bring a topic to the table. It can be something that uh, we've talked about in a previous episode that you wanted to follow up on or to introduce something new. And uh, we just so appreciate you and your support. And we really wanted to be in conversation with you and to expand the number of voices and perspectives um, that are represented on the episodes. And so we've been really looking forward to this first round of, uh, of bringing in different people. It's through the miracle of these uh, distance 
uh, that the internet provides us to be able to all be on here together, it really is an amazing opportunity. And so we're excited to, to hear what you might uh, want to chat about today. It's cool. Right. Because, um, you know, we've got, uh, I think we just figured out we've got like something 650-ish uh, sort of people tuning into this thing. But... You guys are early innovators. You came in with us and helped support us, and we appreciate that so much. And uh, uh, and we really, this is called a journey place, and we talk about being in a conversation. And so uh, even the name Piecing It All Together is about bringing different parts together. So um, this gives us an actual opportunity not just to have people emailing and online, but to, 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 uh, to talk here together for a while. So this is great. I, I love this. Glad to be a part of it. Well, it, I think I love it. I'll let you know at the end of the program if I love it. <laughs> Somebody want to offer something up first? Yeah, this is Tony. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to reference um, contradictions to uh, peace. You know, I, I, I listen to a lot of these episodes, and uh, I find myself, you know, kind of nodding along, uh, uh, agreeing and understanding, but... Um, the idea of peace is something that has, you know, uh, uh, perpetuating peace has been around for, you know, centuries. And, uh, you know, we almost, uh, uh, we seem to be kind of losing ground in some respects. And um, I am, am contemplating lately whether uh, it needs to be like approached in a different manner or, uh, with a different idea uh, in mind. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts. Well, before anybody does, can we ask you, Tony, have, have you got some ideas? Well, um, no, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I've been kind of just rattling it through my brain and um, – yeah. Uh, so mainly, mainly what I guess I'm referencing is, you know, like the, uh, well, a war on terror. You know, essentially, um, that's perpetuated at the idea of bringing peace to uh, this nation here. You know, and in in in, uh, in contrast to it, it's actually uh, terrorizing an entire nation elsewhere. Um. But it, it, by the time the knowledge of this, you know, the situation overseas comes back home, it's, well, we're spreading peace where we want to uh, perpetuate uh, uh, democracy overseas. So, um, and then the, a lot of, a lot of our nation jumps on board with that. Hey, yeah, we're, we're spreading democracy. We are bringing peace to these people over here. Uh, without really viewing the entire the entire picture of what's going on. Okay, let's open it up. So I'll I'll just throw out um, two things. I always think about the micro and the macro. So for me, the micro is. Um, I've just chosen to not support or participate in movies that are centered around gun violence. And one of the things that has done that's been very difficult for me is 
you don't realize how many movies are built around guns, like where guns are the central medium of the of the of the plot until that you're trying not to watch them and then you realize like that's most movies unless you're going to watch like rom-coms almost everything else is built around gun violence and it really is one of those things that woke me up to how prevalent and pervasive gun violence is in our storytelling and our imagination. It's the solution to every problem nearly. So that's on the micro is just, you know, the, the entertainment that I try and participate in. And then on the macro is to challenge, you know, narratives like the war on terror. I mean, that's quite an innovative uh, language because how would you know if you won it's not like you defeated, it's not like a war with France where, you know, they say, I surrender, which is always the kind of the French joke, right? Uh, how, would you, how would you know if you won? It's, it's an unending war against an abstract concept. Mm-hmm. And so it has to be challenged and, uh, and interrogated, to use its own language, to say, this thing, this is, uh, we call it the misplaced concreteness, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. There's no there there. And so everything that happens underneath that banner is suspect. Yeah, no, I, I, um, this is Ryan. I think that, um, you bring up a good point because ever since this, the end of the second world war, um, the United States policy, um, has seemed to be an aspect of unconventional or limited war. And, um, it's actually, you know, for my own research, it seems to go back to, Actually, uh, General George C. Marshall, and when he, uh, you know, the Marshall Plan for rebuilding Europe was in direct, um, uh, you know, a, a direct confrontation with Stalin and the Soviet Union, um, and the idea of building up the U.S. military and then sending a lot of uh, support to Europe to help them rebuild it solidified America's place as the, the lone superpower fighting for control with the Soviet Union. But it's really misunderstood because Marshall, actually when he won, was awarded the, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, gave a speech. And many misunderstand what, and, and just took it out of context because he talked about a strong military and strong United States. But what has been misunderstood is that he he actually made it very clear that that was something that he felt was not a long term solution. Uh, that you cannot continue to to do what we've actually done for the last you know sixty years, and but we've continued to do that. And um, so what we've seen is this aspect of unconventional, limited war, which is a which to me has been proven to be completely um, pointless and has cost thousands upon thousands of lives because we're not doing peer-to-peer fighting. Uh, we haven't done that since the Second World War, and, and we perpetuate a foreign policy that really doesn't seem to, to have much gain in it whatsoever. And so from my aspect um, as a chaplain, I see the effects of a, an operations tempo that is extremely high, and uh, it it has taken its toll on military service members because it used to be that 
um, for, for the Navy, um, that when you did a shore tour, uh, shore duty, it was kind of time to relax, kind of get, you know, get your bearings again uh, from an operational tour. And what we're seeing now is that shore duty is actually more stressful, uh, has a higher um, level of operations than even being on a ship or deployed with Marines uh, because we are, in const- we are in a constant state of being combat ready at any point in time, that we are ready to deploy anywhere in the world to engage uh, an adversary. And what that does is it makes everybody work harder. And so what I'm seeing even on a daily basis is sailors and Marines who have been stretched beyond their limits. And it gets to a point where uh, there's extreme anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, ideal. I mean, I've only been in my command for four weeks. I've had several suicidal ideations, suicidal interventions, um, you know, in addition to all the depression and anxiety, equal opportunity issues. I mean, you name it, it has created a culture where um, it goes beyond competition. It's about annihilating your enemy. And sometimes uh, our enemy is people within our own command. You know, it's, it's this, this extreme competitiveness and toxic masculinity that is perpetuated by this um, U.S. foreign policy that is built on limited war. Hmm. Well, that's some stuff. Well, just, just to even add on to that, um, you know, even though in times of so-called peace – we're not really at peace. If you have a mentality that you're always ready for combat and you always have to be ready for war, peace doesn't exist. Doesn't it seem like America has a neurosis towards war? I mean, that's what it sounds like you've just described to me. I think it's an addiction and, and not just as, as in the, in the power structures that it, it continues to build up, this small, you know, 1% of the powerful, um, to put it very bluntly and, and it's very morose, but combat is addicting. It's an adrenaline rush that really cannot be, um, mimicked by anything else. And so you actually have people that are combat veterans that seek to, to have the same adrenaline rush in something else. And they can't find it outside of combat. So you see people that continue to sign up to do to all these different uh, deployments because there's nothing like it. Uh, so it actually becomes an addiction. And uh, so that's on a personal level. But nationally, uh, absolutely, we've, we've continued to perpetuate this myth that somehow if we're always engaged in some sort of war, that somehow we're, we're getting better as a nation and, and continuing to grow is, is a superpower when actually uh, what we're seeing is our own destruction. Yeah, I've, uh, I mean, I've, our, the current, uh, what the war on terror, I mean, it, it seems like, uh, like what kind of reference as well is it's, it's this unending entity that, um, there's always terror somewhere, you know, uh, if it's not somebody getting killed somewhere, it's, it, um, Jeez, I mean, you can start to reduce it down to um, smaller, smaller uh, concepts. 
I think we need to hang out with Switzerland a little, a little more than we do. Um, yeah, f- figure out what the secret is over there. <laughs> Rob or Alicia, do you have any um, thoughts on this or do you have something uh, you want to switch gears a little bit and we can come back to this later? I think Alicia, you want to go ahead? Yeah, I think um, for me, part of the military feeds the American narrative of strength, power, success, and winning. And so if we're always at war, we always have an enemy, and that's what the focus is. And it's hard to budget for peace um, because part of our part of the script is we are this military superpower. Um, but nobody wins and it doesn't ever go away. Yeah, that's a, some good points. Um, Bo gave me a book uh, a number of years ago and uh, by, written by a guy named Eric Hoffner. And uh, uh, one of the things he said in that is, uh, is that um, you have to have – the only way to gather mass support is to have an enemy, right? So I've also heard it said um, you, can, you can have any mass movement without a god – um, but you have to have a devil. Uh-huh. So if you're going to manipulate people in any sort of way, shape, or fashion, you've got to have a common enemy. And so I think you've hit on that. Well, and it reinforces, reinforces that the binary of good versus evil. And so we can't have good without evil it would be the conclusion to draw from that. And not just good, because in America, you know, God is on our side every time we go to war. Uh. <laughs> and so, you know, with God on our side, you know, who could be against us? Everybody's got to be evil, right? Uh, obviously. You know, I, I know that it was, um, you were being semi-snarky or sarcastic, but I just have to say that's not that far from actual things people say, but dead serious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all the time. Anytime you talk about American exceptionalism, that's what we're talking about. Mm. It's just another manifestation of manifest destiny and the doctrine of discovery and every other thing that's been used to justify um, basically uh, the um, white upper class male society getting their rights above everybody else's. I like, you know, Bob Dylan wrote a song way back in the 60s. It's called... Uh, um, with God on our side. Anybody ever heard that? I just happened to post it today on my Facebook page. That's the first uh, I had heard of it. Oh, yeah. It goes through the, all the different wars and talks about, you know, how God's on our side. And, you know, um, and then the very last line is the one I want to read. It says, uh, uh, after he's kept going and going and going, and every, every, every uh, verse ends with, you know, basically we have God on our side for all these different wars. And then he says, so now as I'm leaving, I'm weary as hell. The confusion I'm feeling ain't no tongue can tell. The words fill my head and fall to the floor. If God's on our side, he'll stop the next war. Hmm. I guess that's how you know if God's on your side, if you don't go to war. Hmm. Uh, Then God must be far from... uh where our, our military's headed. I mean, they always seem to have their, they've got their hands in just about everything possible. 
if it's not a war, it's, uh, you know, trying to influence government somewhere else. Yeah. You By know, means of weapons. You know, you know what was fascinating in this uh, last election cycle is um, our current president uh, got accused at points of being uh, an American first mentality. And one of the interesting things in that debate is for whatever else you problem you might have with, um, with our 45th president, uh, I never say his name, by the way, I, the T word, I never say it, but um, whatever other problems you might have, it was fascinating that some people objected to him not wanting to be the police of the world and to get out of some of our engagements and having so many bases in, in more than 80 countries around the world and to pull some of those resources back and to uh, be America first and, and not to be responsible for uh, the world. It was amazing to hear some of the objections um, that people had to say, you know, this is our role in the world. We've made these commitments in the decades from World War II. This has become a commitment. And if we didn't do this, you know, X, Y, and Z, the world would fall into chaos or there'd be uprisings or there'd be a surge in terrorism or whatever it was. It was a fascinating conversation. And Unfortunately, it got drowned out by so many other controversies, but it's one that I really wish had come, uh, been able to emerge in the midst of all of the chaos of that election, because that's a conversation I would love to have. Well, that was Ronald Reagan's doctrine of military. Right. That, that, and so um, it's just resurfacing. I don't think that's ever gone away. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a semi-related uh, topic, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, you've been discussing, this is Rob, by the way, you've been discussing recently the military-industrial complex. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody saw the, uh, if anybody saw the documentary a number of years ago called Why We Fight, uh, but it talked about uh, President Eisenhower's original use. I believe it was Eisenhower who originally used the term military-industrial complex, and it turns out that in his first draft, he wanted to call it the military-industrial-congressional complex, but his, his advisors um, argued that he should take that out of there because it wouldn't play well in public. Just interested in your thoughts on how that would change the conversation if we were to introduce the word congressional hmm. uh, into that topic. Rob, can you say more about, can you take a swing at that? Well, sure, sure. I, I mean, it would spread the blame around a little bit more. The responsibility, that's my guess, is that it wouldn't be so abstract. It would actually be the responsibility of named individuals representing districts around our country, hmm. meaning that not only would our elected representatives be responsible, but we in turn would be responsible for what happens. It would you know, take it out of the sky and, and really bring it to street level. That's my guess. Hmm. I'm always fascinated when, whether it's quotes or sayings, get shortened. Mm -hmm. the, what gets left out? I'm always, that's always fascinating to me to do a genealogy like that. So, um, yeah, I, I'll talk about the congressional thing if, if any, but I want to let anybody else go first. Oh, well, I think I'd, it's, no, go ahead, go Tony. Ahead. 
<laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I think that would actually end up directing it more towards uh, one entity when it is, uh, it's a bit of a conglomeration of, uh, you know, the uh, uh, executive uh, branch of government plus, you know, uh, the military itself, you know, the funding is going to the military to take on these actions. And yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm a little, uh, a little lacking in knowledge on, you know, how exactly our, our government works, uh, sad to say, but uh, I think that takes a, a doctrine in itself to, to understand. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm no constitutional scholar, but uh, I have read it many, many times, uh, and it it seems that the original intent uh, in the Constitution is um, regarding war that it's a decision that is made by the Congress. And what we've seen uh, since Vietnam is that it's been a decision made by the executive branch of government, and con- the Congress has actually give, given a lot of its power over to the executive branch and so that the president can actually send forces. I mean, we have not declared war uh, technically since the second world war. And yet we've been engaged in all these different wars, but uh, you know, as far as uh, the military industrial complex versus military industrial congressional complex, I think it's also important to understand that a lot of the defense funding you know, it's, it's, it's always under this political guise of, well, we're giving it to our military. You know, our service members are getting this money. Well, aside from next year, I get a, I think it's a 2.6% pay increase. Uh, we don't see that. In fact, also, some of our benefits have been slashed under this administration and this Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where's the money going? Who gets the money? Well, uh, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Blackwater, all these contractors get the money. That's where most of that money's going. So instead of it being a congressional thing, they appropriate the funds. Um, it, we, it really is an industrial aspect um, where this is a business. War is a business, and a very few people make billions upon billions of dollars off of it, while many of us who sign up for good reasons, not all for bad reasons, uh, get the shaft. Mm-hmm. So can I, I want to keep going on this. I, can I just going to say on a side note, one of the fun things about starting this project with Randy was coming up with the name um, we, we tried out probably 120 different <laughs> configurations and names. Uh, and, and when we uh, first heard this one, Randy's daughter actually had suggested it. Um, it just resonated with both of us. My one fear in calling it this, though, was that the piecing, while it was clever to try and make it a verb, would be sort of a like a metaphor. And I just have to say it has dawned on me in the last two months of doing this project that, um, piecing is our first name and we are living up to it in that. And I'm so delighted that I didn't know what any of you were going to bring to the table today. And the fact that this is what you wanted to talk about makes me so happy that we actually named the show this because apparently it touched a nerve and it's not just a metaphor. This is actually a real thing that we definitely need to address. So that makes me super happy that we named the show this. And we're, 
as a, as a nation, we're pretty much asleep to war right now, even though we're still involved in war. Um, but if we get in an active big war, um, you know, I, I think uh, people are going to take notice a little bit more about uh, what peace is all about. But it's better to prevent war than uh, to have to try and pull ourselves out of one. Because once the wheels get rolling, and, and uh, like, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Ryan had uh, stated about the corporations, once the bucks start rolling in, you know, nobody wants to stop. Hmm. So, Rob, to go back to your congressional suggestion, which apparently was a really vital suggestion, um, you know, I joked with Randy a couple episodes ago that um, some people think that budgets are moral documents, which Randy's one of those people. He thinks it's a moral document. Um, And so when you look at funding, just percentage-wise, a congressional budget, it is, I mean, beyond uh, eye-opening. It's shocking to see how much of congressional budget goes to military and military-adjacent groups like uh, contractors. So Mm -hmm. I think that the addition of the congressional element, for me, immediately brings in the issue of budget. Oh, certainly, certainly. Um, you know, and certainly the, the the number of jobs that are connected to this issue we're talking about. I know that's a giant issue. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a big discussion about whether or not we were going to continue to build the Abrams tank uh, because it seems that warfare has changed and we maybe don't need as many of them as we used to. But, you know, how many thousands of jobs are connected to making these tanks? So we've just continued to make them and they're mothballed all over the United States now. And um, the, the Iraq war is really the, the probably premier example of um, sort of uh, dirty money being made on war with uh, Halliburton and Blackwater's no bid contracts, you know, Halliburton, uh, Dick Cheney used to be the vice president at Blackwater. Um, Eric Prince is a long-term uh, friend of the Bush family. And they were all given no-bid contracts to do Blackwater, most of the security, um, Halliburton, most everything else over there. Um, and uh, um, that's the kind of thing that, that feeds into this. And so I imagine since then, all of those corporations and others have been thinking, oh, wow, if they could do that, then we could probably do that and take it a lot farther. So it it really scares me to think about where that money's going mm-hmm. and uh, how much of it's going to just outside contractors who have been given the opportunity to uh, uh, basically um, take all the money while uh, our nation gives all the blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily – well, the idea of giving that money to contractors scares me um, because uh, they can – they don't live by the Constitution when they're given this money to obtain these objectives, you know. Um, they're uh, – you're outsourcing, you're contracting it out, and um, you're passing off some of the liability. So if they execute a few extra civilians in the process – 
uh, well, that was the contractor's fault. It wasn't, it wasn't the United States or the people that paid those contractors, you know, our hands are, our hands are off of it. I see a lot of that coming up in, um, in the work I do. I work in the trades and, and, uh, I see a lot of our work being contracted out because it's too dangerous. It's too, uh, uh, it's too risky for the company to take on. Huh. Well, yeah, I mean, when you see, when, when the American people see on the news X amount of Americans, uh, meaning service members, killed in combat versus, uh, I don't know if anybody remembers seeing uh, reports on a contractor was killed in Iraq or a contractor was killed in Afghanistan. That doesn't really mean a lot to a lot of people, but when they see X amount of service members killed, uh, it starts to tear down the myth. People start to have a problem with it. Uh, and especially, you know, I noticed with Iraq and Afghanistan, people were, were – the American populace as a general whole seemed to be incredibly supportive. And then all of a sudden when they see civilians being killed in combat, immediately they pull their support from a war and are like, no, we can't do this. And part of me pushes back against that and I go, well, what did you think was going to happen? It's called war. People die. A lot of people so maybe before we get into something like that, we should actually understand what happens. War is horrible. Nobody wins. Everybody loses. And there is there's destruction. It's all, that's all it is, is pure and utter destruction. Yet there's this, this myth that's perpetuated consistently in the American culture that it's this, it's really a religion. And um, I think one of the problems that we see is that the American populace has no idea what war actually is. Ryan, I want to correct you. I don't think we call them civilian deaths anymore. I think we're supposed to say collateral damage. That's the legal, that's the legal term for it. I think actually, as we, uh, now I will say, um, you know, don't hear what I'm not saying, but I will say, um, most people don't realize how many operations, thousands of operations were halted because of the quote unquote collateral damage, um, is, is horrible as war is. And, um, the terror of war, the United States military still plays by a certain amount of rules. Now that don't hear what I'm not saying there, but that is one thing that, uh, that we try, uh, at least our service members try their best, um, to limit the amount of what is called collateral damage, but we're talking about civilian deaths, um, as well as the effect to the environment, um, but there are many voices out there that don't think that there should be any consideration for the environment or civilian casualties that, that argue for an all-out war of attrition, which is actually against the Geneva Convention. Um, with the time we have left, I'd like to throw out three sort of constructive um, options uh, for our time together. Uh, the first one is um, let's talk about books or resources that, that maybe would be good uh, for those who are listening. If they're interested in such a thing, 
um, if, if they found um, this conversation interesting, maybe something they can follow up on. So, Rob, you had mentioned uh, Why We Fight, the documentary. That was a good. Uh, I'll throw mm-hmm. out two that I've really uh, found helpful. One of my favorite authors is Chris Hedges. Um, the episode that just came out an hour ago, episode 17 about the news, I talk about Chris Hedges a little bit. He has a book called um, War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. As possibly something we could do a book club on. Uh, maybe in the spring we could do a, a book club and talk about War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. There's a newer book that came out called um, How the Military Became Everything and Everything Became the Military, something like that. I read it. It was really interesting but uh, not quite as concise and straightforward as the Chris Hedges book. But so there's, there's a documentary that Rob had named and there's two books. Anybody else have any suggestions if somebody wanted to follow up with this? Uh, John Pillager. Uh, he's an Australian journalist. He's got his own website. Um, plus a documentary out about, uh, about the, the real visualizations of war. Um, I couldn't, I can't think of the title of it at the moment, but okay. I'll track it down and include it in the show notes. All right. Well, I, I think it's uh, off the top of my head. Uh, it's really important to mention Shalom and the community of creation yeah. uh, written by the, uh, the noted well critic, uh, Randy Woodley. And, uh, I would also encourage people to watch, um, uh, Ken Burns, Vietnam, hmm. uh, documentary that, that was that very powerful. Oh. Okay, yeah. I will. I will break my rule about not watching entertainment that's centered around guns. I'll, we'll call that edutainment. All right. Uh, so, any any book about uh, the, that's an honest book about the United States and Native Americans. Um, the reason that the U.S. got so good at that is because they practice on us for three to four hundred years. So, you know, you, most people start with something like D. Brown's uh, Burying My Heart at Wounded Knee. And once you begin to understand how the United States perfected war against Native Americans, um, then uh, you'll understand more of what's happening these days. Uh, huh. well, well, Conquest by, uh, was it Andrea Smith wrote that? Oh, my gosh. Andrea Smith is an amazing author. Yeah. Very, I would, I would not recommend reading the book if you're depressed, uh, but that is, that is an incredibly powerful book that I think everyone should read. You know, there are books that you really should read as part of a book group, and that's probably one of them that would be good to take three or four people with you on that journey. Yeah. There, yeah, even though the medium of books is like it's so easy to sit alone and read a book, not all books are best read alone. Some books are best read in community. I agree. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't, sometimes you read over something or somebody can interpret a different way and just to communicate about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's definitely great. I'm more of a visual person myself. And, uh, you know, I find myself, uh, watching vice news on, uh, on YouTube quite a bit, which they have a lot of, uh, quite a bit of information about different conflicts that are going on across the world that are, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the U S has their hands in. Mm-hmm. Okay. My second thing is, um, does anybody here, uh, identify as a pacifist? I'm just wondering if 
if uh, you know, Randy and I had talked about that in a previous episode. I didn't know if that uh, if that was something that resonated with anybody. I don't identify as a pacifist any longer, um, so I'm just I didn't know if that was something that resonated. And if it doesn't, what's a better alternative? Well, I have been. This is Rob. I've certainly been. Uh identifying on the, the pacifist side of things for quite some time, but I'm uh, currently reevaluating my perspective based on one of the conversations you guys have been having recently about um, the imbalance of power, oftentimes between two different people groups. And it's probably uh, not the greatest idea for me, a person in a position of uh, privilege to tell people who are not in a position of privilege, how they should act when people are uh, treating them poorly. Um, but I would still lean on the pacifist side of things. Mm-hmm. So like a personal pacifist, but not a prescriptive pacifist. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Fun with words. I like that <laughs> definition. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. I could actually subscribe to that. I might've found a new calling. Anyone else want to chime in on either the pacifist or, identification or a better alternative. All right. Last thing I wanted to throw out just to see if anybody had any thoughts on is, you know, have you heard this theory that the most the time that we are most likely to go to war is uh, at the back end of the first term of a, of a presidency because presidents are not voted out. They are always voted in their second term if we are currently in war. And so uh, some conspiracy theorist friends that I have have said, in the next year, we will go to war because that way, that 2020 election, they're not going to change presidents in the middle of a war. And they've cited uh, historically most recently with uh, Bush um, that we just don't do it. And so we stick with um, our current president if we are in the midst of a war. And so there is an expectation that there will be an elevation of a conflict in the next year because of that. Has anybody heard something like that? I don't doubt that there might be a conflict, but I, I think that theory might be based on the stability of the person in office as president. And there's nothing stable about, uh, you know, 45. So, um, you know, that, that may not apply here. So uh, it might be well, more stable to actually replace him. Keep an eye on, um, what's going on in the South China sea. Um, so if we look at, uh, if we look at the, the, uh, the tariffs that have been put in place, um, and who, who who the tariffs are, are aimed at, and where we're deploying ships. Um, you know, there's a lot of growing tension in the South China Sea, um, and so there's you know there's concern that that something because when we're deploying a lot of forces to the South China Sea, there are potential conflicts that can emerge just from having two major powers so close together with their militaries. Yikes. Whoa. Okay. 
So if, as we wrap up here, I would be interested to hear from each of you about uh, a topic that you might like Randy and I to touch on in the coming episodes. We are really interested in uh, you all giving shape and direction to the topics for the show. We have a, we have two or three topics that we're currently working on, but uh, anything that you want to see us address after that? So real quickly, let's tell them what they are. So, um, so we'll be doing an episode in the next one or two on uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. Good. Mm. Was there anything else, Bo, we're doing that? Uh, An environmental one? Yeah, an environmental. Okay. Yep. So I have something um, that's been coming up in conversations either surrounding racism or pronouns. And it always it comes back to this freedom of speech argument that people should be able to say whatever they want to say. And um, it feels a lot like tone policing. Um, and it's, it's interesting because looking at the last six years, um, unless you are in alignment with the majority party, they kind of silence that in church conversations. And um, it's interesting that they go to the freedom of speech thing, like their, their rights are being violated by being told that they should use a pronoun or they should be able to be free to be racists if they want to be. Wow. Okay. I th- I think we could definitely do an episode on that. <laughs> Randy, by the way, I've never seen somebody who gets um, their tone policed more than Randy. Oh, <laughs> uh, I get it a lot. <laughs> Man, people are constantly saying, well, I appreciate what you're saying, but could you say it a different way or not so angry or, right. you know, can we take it down a notch? Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah. I'm just an angry old man. <laughs> Anyone else? Uh, a topic that you would like to see us cover? I'd I'd love to hear some more conversation on how to be a good ally in the church uh, for these types of conversations. Uh, you know, I I with some of my folks, I try to bring up some of these conversations that I've been listening in on and perhaps get an eye roll uh, or perhaps uh, a sigh. Here we go again. But one of the things I've actually noticed about myself recently that I'm kind of humbled and embarrassed to admit is that I'm using a lot of the old methods to try to make my point about adopting new methods, if that makes sense. Uh Like um, going to bat, for instance, for women in church ministry uh, trying to be an ally at the table where there are women and then having it pointed out to me, Rob, why don't you let the women speak for themselves? And just being incredibly embarrassed by how tone deaf I was in those moments. Um, yeah, that'd be, I, I'd love to hear some of the nuts and bolts on how to move forward in a more constructive way. I would say as a woman in ministry, it's important for men to be saying that, but also to say that and then do this so that the women can follow up or start the conversation and then you back them up. For those of you who can't see, she just made the pipe down signal, the the shush. Shush. Okay, noted. (laughs) Oh, good. 
I think uh, there needs to be some serious time devoted to Indian boarding schools. Um, Oh, yeah. So many um, people in this nation have no idea of the nightmare uh, in the the history, the very real history and recent history of what has been done to Native people, specifically boarding schools. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing the 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 amnesia or just the out of sight nature that I mean there are lots of people who are still alive. Yeah. Elders who have memories of those schools living witness yeah. and but for most people it's just nowhere on their uh, consciousness. When you, you know, I have a middle schooler um, in eighth grade, and unless we were having these conversations, it's not taught in the schools. It's not part. Well, I mean, maybe in high school it will be, but it, I don't remember it being no. that way with my older son either. It's just not part of the conversation. And I was in one of Randy's classes this spring, and that came up, and it was amazing to me how many people were like shocked by the uh, boarding schools. Like either they'd never heard it before or they thought maybe there had been exaggeration. It was a fascinating class to sit in. Oh yeah. I mean, it blows my mind if I mention that uh, first of all, how many people don't even know what it is. And then secondly, when I discuss it, how many people just dismiss it? Oh, that's just a lie. That's not true. Or that's something the Catholic church did. Mm Mm-hmm. Or it was X number of years ago, and like Randy addressed in one of the recent podcasts, like getting over it. Like it's not, it's not over yet. It's not resolved. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and honestly, the you know the government has stopped separating children from their. Oh wait, never mind. <laughs> just kidding. right, and and what was it? The report that just came out actually that they're they're not going to. Uh, stop and and what what they're actually they're they're like changing the policy to where they're not going to separate children from their parents, but they'll continue to just detain families. Right. And so maybe immigration is another issue. And uh, we talked about, of course, Jeff Sessions' use of Romans one, but we are uh, I'm sorry, Romans twelve, but we didn't. Uh, I'm sorry, thirteen. Poor Jeff. Yeah, but we didn't talk about immigration proper. Tony, uh, you haven't uh, piped in yet on this. You got anything of interest you want us to deal with in the future? Um, you know what I could use is a is a good story. Honestly, um, you know, uh, I feel like a well, I was I was raised as a, a Catholic Christian, uh, and I I strayed away from that. Um, towards my teenage years and um, you know I find myself uh, relating back to a lot of the stories that I was taught back then as uh, ways to continue my moral standing I guess and um, but I find myself wanting to connect with life in general and uh, I, I have I struggle a bit to do so because I, I, I don't have a community that is doing that at the moment. And, um, uh, what is really, uh, I, I, I found a, I found a recent a book that me and my wife picked up with braiding sweetgrass and it's got a lot of, 
a lot of stories to it um, that really help uh, perpetuate the idea of connecting with life as a whole, as opposed to other human beings. And you know, I'm really appreciating that at the moment. So yeah, I'm hearing a lot of good things about that book. I, I'm like, uh, I'm only uh, within the first chapter, so I can't comment much about it. If my wife were here, she, she'd probably tell you some stories. But. I appreciate you bringing that up. I, you know, when we did the episode where I ran my theory, uh, past Randy about the, where the, the stories, the practices and the relationships overlap, I was very aware after that episode was released and I was listening to it. Um, thinking about people hearing it for the first time. And the thing that came into my mind was, what if you don't have a big story that you're living up into? Mm-hmm. That would be, that would be you very evident, you know, that you, you were listening to this and you're thinking, man, I, wait a minute, I don't have a big story I'm living up into. So uh, I think I want to ask a question of everybody. Um, uh, sometimes they ask this on, uh, some new shows, but, uh, um, uh, what Tony just mentioned, I reminded me, I'm reading a really good book right now. It's called, uh, by Kelly Brown Douglas called stand your ground. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I think it's a, a really, really good book. It's sort of a, I would say a continuation of what I would call, uh, the whiteness series, which most people don't have a clue about what that means. I know, but but um, this is uh, traces the Anglo-Saxon myth and uh, and relates it to stand your ground as just another sort of uh, way to enforce Jim Crow and and uh, and other sorts of things in Florida and other places in the country. And, uh, it's a really good book. So, anybody reading anything of interest right now? I just finished up uh, a book called Still Christian uh, by a Christian ethicist by the name of David Gushy. Um, and fascinating. Uh, he, uh, he lays out kind of over the last 20 or 30 years, how, uh, all the moderates have been kicked out of the evangelical church. Mm. It was just a fascinating read, really quick read too. Yeah, I read that, uh, met him and there's actually, uh, a lot of professors, uh, in, Christian schools who are being persecuted and ousted um, by uh, more conservative uh, regimes in Christendom. Uh, actually, they're, they're piling up. There's a whole sort of list of loose professors now who yeah. don't have jobs, uh, including the uh, woman at Wheaton and David and uh, yeah, a number of others I've heard about. Well, I mean, we had Thomas J. Ward on our um, podcast early on. He's one of those. And there was just another one this week, Randy. I don't know if you saw your friend Bruxy from Canada. Him and... Um, yeah. Uh, Greg Boyd. And Greg Boyd. They were ousted from a seminary in the Bay Area. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a real issue. By the way, I just heard from Thomas this morning. He's going to be back out here in February. Oh, cool. Well, we can stay on and chat, but I just wanted to say that um, we will see you all again in November. We're so grateful for your support. It really means a lot to us, and we've been looking forward to chatting with you. You should feel free at any point to send us an email, uh, connect at piecingitalltogether.com, 
or you can send us an MP3, like a, uh, like a voicemail, and we'll play it on uh, the episode. So if you want to have your voice on the episode, we'll play it, and then we'll uh, interact with, with whatever prompt you send us. But we wanted to make sure that you knew that that was one of the uh, privileges that membership comes with uh, a benefit that that's one of the benefits is we really are wanting to hear from you. And, um, and if you have a topic or a direction that we really want to respond to that. So we're grateful for your partnership and we wanted to make sure that you knew we weren't, uh, that that wasn't an empty promise. We really are looking, uh, to be interactive. And it's good to get on in this thing uh, early because, you know, when we have 100 people giving $20 a month, it's going to be really tough to get everybody on. So. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's great. You're going to have to step up the threshold. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate you giving us this opportunity to, to get on here and speak as well. Uh, I, you know, I'm really grateful for it. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't branch out a lot from work. And communicating with my community. So I appreciate the chance to have a voice here. Thank you. It's nice to connect with you. Well, and everybody uh, needs to get Fear by Bob Woodward. I think that'll be a a fun read. Yeah, that looks interesting. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Did you see the cover of that thing? Oh, man. Somebody (laughs) did a genius job of of the visual design. I have It, it. Yeah, it's it's like uh, it's something that I would expect to be like the opposite of Mein Kampf. It's just it's just really you know it, it's pretty clever. Oh man! Yeah. Oh my god! You just brought it up. Yeah. yeah. That's that's something. Well, thank you all for your time in the middle of a, of a beautiful fall Saturday, and uh, we really appreciate it, and we're glad that it worked out. Thanks for your responses about what times would work. I would have never picked a Saturday afternoon. I didn't even know that that was one of the best options, so I'm so happy that it worked for Yeah, glad thanks to be a part of it. Yeah, we really appreciate the uh, support and the confidence, and, you know, it, it, it makes us feel really good and uh, encourages us to, to keep going. Um, we don't have all the answers, but uh, we definitely are able to start some conversations. So thanks for helping us here on Piecing It All Together. And I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. And peace out. <laughs>